0: Open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. The book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We had a couple Sundays away from our study in the book of Hebrews, but we come back once again. And truly, I think, in light of what we read and what we have been learning in the book of Jeremiah, it helps us to better appreciate what we are experiencing in the fullness of the new covenant promises and the new covenant blessings that those under the old covenant did not fully experience in the same way. And so as our hearts have been prepared, to some degree at least, in our Old Testament reading, we come here to Hebrews chapter 8 once again to conclude chapter 8. Let us look at uh, verse 1. And uh, I'll read all the way down to verse 13. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the summary. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For he, for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, Then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least. To the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that He saith, A new covenant, He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O Father, we come to you. In the name of thy son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask you, Lord, to teach us, to feed us, to grow us, Lord, according to your word, by the power of your blessed spirit. Lord, we have sung thus far many songs of divine truth. You are our God, we confess, and we are your people through the work of thy son, Jesus. Lord, we confess and we Lord, acknowledge the fact that, oh God, we need you more now than ever as your new covenant people to nourish our souls through the truth of what we are learning here in this text. Lord, come now, we pray, and exalt thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that our hearts may be edified and encouraged. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we have been tracking through this prophecy of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, as it's contained here specifically in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 8 down to verse 12. And what in the world was the purpose of this New Testament inspired author to bring this old testament prophecy from jeremiah into his own sermon well it's very clear of why he was doing it he was doing it to encourage the hearts and the souls of the church members in this first century church to look away from their own failures their own sins which in the old covenant would have brought upon them cursing chastisement and judgment and to continually look to jesus christ Because continuing to look to Jesus Christ, they would have the anchor of their soul helping them to stay steadfast all the way unto the end. So we've been seeing that, haven't we? And we've been careful to go through the four distinctive marks or you could say blessings of what it is Jeremiah was promising as he was inspired by God the Spirit. The first We looked at is that God would write his law on the minds and the hearts of everyone that would be in this community and being blessed in the new covenant. And then we combine the second and the third blessing in our last time in this text where all those would have a different fellowship with God, the creator, through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and how that that intimate fellowship was a marker of true salvific knowledge. No one in the new covenant, in other words, would need to evangelize one another. You remember we talked about that. Those who have been supernaturally inscribed upon their hearts with the law of God, they have come to know God savingly. And so in the church community, we do not evangelize one another per se, but... As we read, I know what you're thinking already, especially because of what Brother A.J. read. We still proclaim God's word in the gospel because we cannot be the dissenter of men's hearts. A.J., I think, uh, ably applied that, right? But we come to this last portion of verse 12, which is the last portion of the new covenant. And beloved, I hope you see, as you see in your sermon notes, that it is the crowning blessing. It's the if it were the new covenant compared to a crown, this mark, or this blessing, this I will work of God that we see in verse 12, it's the biggest and the brightest jewel that's in that crown. The fact is you see in verse number 12 that God says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, your unrighteousness, and I will be merciful to their sins and their iniquities, Will I remember no more. This is the crowning jewel of this new covenant prophecy. It could also be rendered, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. Will I remember no more. Beginning here and going into chapters 9 and chapter 10, this idea we know dominates the thought of the writer. He wants to, what we're going to do today, establish why this must be fully understood, the grounds by which, the legal grounds by which God can do this, and also um, why you ought to continually to look to it and remember. And that's why in chapters 9 and 10, he's going to focus on how Jesus has a superior sanctuary. There's going to be some contrast between the Old Testament sanctuary and the New Testament, and how Jesus' sacrifice was superior. And so today, to help prepare us to go into chapters 9 and 10, to be focusing more on the uniqueness and the extraordinary sacrifice of Christ and his sanctuary, we're going to look at this last marker, this last blessing of the new covenant in two ways. We're going to look at it in the first heading of... The grounds by which a just, a righteous, a holy God, who is the vindicator of all moral truth, who is the judge and the discerner of all that which is right and wrong, light and dark, truth and false. How is it that he can turn his back on that which goes against his law? How is it in this covenant arrangement where there are people who actually commit sins and lawless deeds and he is a thrice holy God will bind himself to not allow it to come into his mind. And so our first heading is, what is the grounds of this covenant blessing? What is the grounds of this covenant blessing? Think for a moment who we're talking about and what we've already described, who are members of it. These are people, brother, who have had God supernaturally write His law upon their hearts and their minds. These are individuals whose affections have been supernaturally altered to love Him. These are people who say and they experientially truly know God is my God and I am one of his people. Wouldn't that, brother, make these lawbreakers doubly accountable? Wouldn't it make them, dear sister, doubly responsible for knowing what they're doing? How is it that God, who has given them this gift of opening their blinded, hardened hearts to the truth of who he is, and the preciousness of his law to help and to guide them how can it be that these type of people god who has given so much to can look at them and remember their sins no more remember their sins no more these people in the new covenant of the words they cannot claim ignorance can they some can probably say ignorance is bliss But if we properly have handled verses 9 to 11, the New Covenant community can't say that. So how is it? What is the grounds by which God, a holy God, can no longer look and see the sins of these New Covenant people? Well, I hope you have your sermon notes because the author has already been showing us the answer of how this is possible. The writer inspired by the Holy Spirit to the book of Hebrews, he's already being kind of showing us how it is that God, this holy God, won't look at the sins of his people. Look in your notes at Hebrews 1.3, right at the beginning of this letter. So you see, it's it's a predominant theme. It's a predominant truth in the Christian life of how it is, what affords us this protection of God's wrathful, vengeful eye. It's a dominant theme. He begins right in chapter 1. He said in verse 3, describing the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father. He says, Who being in the brightness of His glory, in the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power. This is Jesus. When He, Jesus, had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He already was preparing us for the reality of this truth of how God can no longer look upon the sins and the lawless deeds of his people. It has something to do with his begotten son in this work that was mentioned in chapter 1. Elsewhere, you may recall that he spoke of the son as the one who was a propitiation. For the sins of his people. Do you remember that? Look in your notes. It's right there in chapter 2. We looked at this. Wherefore in all things. It behooved him. You got to love that old authorized language. The behooving. It behooved Christ. To be made like. Unto his brother. Becoming a man. That he might be, why? What was the purpose for Christ becoming a man? That he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest. What was his work as a high priest in things pertaining to God? Here it is. To make reconciliation. Some translations, you could rightly translate it, to be a propitiation for the sins of his people. Well, that's a big word. What does that mean? Propitiation means that he could be a ransom for his people. Oh, now we're starting to see, don't we, how it is that God, a righteous, holy God, can no longer look upon the sins and the lawless deeds of his people, even though they have his law written upon their heart. It has something to do with this work of his only begotten son who ransomed them and has bought them. He further emphasizes the uniqueness of what it was that this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, did in this priestly work in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. And by now, all these things are flooding back in your mind. We looked at all of these. He says, There, as you see in your sermon notes, who, referring to Jesus, needeth not daily, as those high priests, the ones in the Old Testament, Old Covenant Temple, Jesus needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, because he was sinless. And then for the people's sins, for this he did once when he offered up himself. Now it's coming into full focus, isn't it? How did he, how was he a a propitiation? How did he purge him from the sins? Oh, he offered up himself. He gave his own life. He spilled his own blood. And so, what we are being taught here, and what would be further clarified in chapters nine and ten, is that by this sacrificial means that the writer has been pointing to all along the way, this means, or what we could say, this cross work of Jesus, the Son has successfully accomplished full and final atonement for who—the sins of His people the sins of his people there is beloved not any singular thing that was left undone or left unfinished upon calvary by which the atoning shed blood of jesus christ did not complete is what verse 12 is teaching us because if if that's so God doesn't have a legal, a covenantal, a solid ground to stop remembering sins which violate his holy law. This understanding is, of course, as you see in your summers, what lies behind the cry of Jesus on the cross, the son on the cross, when he says to the father, it is finished. What is finished? the final and the full atonement the ransom the work for all of their sins father now i have taken their sins upon me you no longer can look upon their sins any more they have been completely paid you see this beckons us to search the scriptures, beloved, and recount in Ephesians 1.11, account in John 17, this narrative that we keep pointing back to, which is so precious, that there was an eternal agreement between the Father and the Son, that if the Son would do this work, this cross work, it would be the legal arrangement that would satisfy the law of God, by which our sins will no longer ever be remembered by him. And so now in this covenant arrangement that we in theology call the covenant of redemption, this is this agreement that is in scriptures, this theological words that existed in the Trinity, that if the son does this and the father will do this. You see, for God now to, after Jesus has done this work, fulfilled that aspect of the covenant, Shedding His blood. It would be unjust. It would be unrighteous. For the Father to now look upon the sins of those. Who Jesus served as a sacrificial lamb. It is based upon this atoning work of Jesus. That the promise in Jeremiah 31. Regarding this new covenant blessing. Can be fulfilled in its only based upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ. What we see now in verse 12 is that solely on the basis of Jesus making propitiation, Jehovah God is said to be merciful. He's said to be kind in verse 12 to their sins, to remember them no more, their lawless deeds. This posture of Jehovah being described was not according to and it was not the posture in the covenant of the first covenant, the old covenant. That was not his posture. That was not his demeanor, his reaction to the sins of the people. We've been in our Old Testament reading going through Jeremiah. You heard what was even said today. If they did not take the yoke, and it was no light yoke, it was definitely better than death, the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar upon them, God was going to remove them. And destroy them. That's not verse 12 today where he's not going to remember their sins and their lawless deeds anymore, is it? No, it wasn't. We have repeatedly in our time together in the book of Hebrews up to this point demonstrated that under the old covenant, there was no such thing as full and final atonement made for sin. This was why it's described as being weak and described as being faulty. But there was some forgiveness. There was some atonement in that old covenant arrangement that they were under, since we're talking about that. I mean, we should be asking the question, did not the Old Testament people of God had forgiveness of their sins through the sacrificial system? Yes, they did. Remember, it wasn't full. It wasn't final. We've demonstrated this before. It was temporal. As we learned just last week, remember we were in Romans 4 and we talked about circumcision. Circumcision and all these other ceremonial acts, they were typical and intended to point the people away from the limits, the weakness of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant promises, which would be fulfilled in the blood and the sacrifice of the promised Messiah. And so in this sense, considering those Old Testament rites and rituals, the Old Testament sacrifices, they were in a way a veiled representation of the promised-coming work of the atonement that eventually would be accomplished, as we're learning in Hebrews, through the ministry of Jesus Christ and his crossword. Do you remember I put in your sermon notes how that Paul that last week he went through Romans chapter 1 and 2 to demonstrate that all the Gentiles needed a Savior. And then he went from chapter 2 to chapter, into chapter 3 to demonstrate that all the Jews needed a Savior. How was that salvation going to come? He told us in Romans 3, 23 to 25. Let's look again at it. At it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption That is in Christ Jesus. From God hath set forth. To be a propitiation. There's that ransom. Through faith in his blood. In his blood. There's the sacrificial work of Jesus. The ancient gospel as we observed last week. Was this message. That final and full atonement. Would someday come. And it would come by faith alone. By grace alone. And the Messiah alone. So, this is the grounds by which God can now still be righteous, still be just, and still be holy. In other words, Naomi, God, He did not change His law. God did not soften His justice as a righteous judge in order to fulfill this promise to no longer look upon the sins and the iniquities of those who are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. This is common to all society. None of us would tolerate a judge who has double standards, would we? We see it all the time in our politicians and it irritates us, doesn't it? God's not a double standard God. He is 100% just and holy and righteous. But it's through the blessed work of Jesus Christ and what He did upon that cross that allows God to be both just and holy and also merciful and forgiving by the cross of Christ. At this point, I think it's safe to conclude that the legal and the covenantal grounds by which Jehovah God will no longer remember the sins of his people and still be righteous and still be a just God is because of the penal substitutionary work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Amen? But let us now move on to our second heading to consider what I described before as the crowning blessing of the new covenant. And that is this reality that he will cease, he will stop remembering the sins of his people. Verse 12 teaches us that God will actively cease from remembering the sins and the lawless deeds of those who belong to Jesus Christ. That's what it's teaching us. And brothers and sisters, this simply but very powerfully means... That all those who by faith are covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ through faith alone. God will not ever call their sins to his mind for the purpose of condemnation and judgment. He will never do it. It again will be illegal for him to do so. As I just mentioned ago in connection with the eternal covenant of redemption that he made. The compact, the agreement with the son. Jesus Christ faithfully and obediently went to the cross and died to cover your sins. And God is teaching us here today insomuch that you are granted the faith to believe that that is your only hope and you cling to that as your only hope and you are covered by that blood. He will not remember your sins and hold them up for the purpose of condemnation or judgment. But can we be certain? Can we be so dogmatic Can I proclaim with boldness such an interpretation to you? I believe I can because I stand upon the word of God. I allow the word of God to interpret the word of God. Look with me in your sermon notes. In the immediate context of this sermonic letter, The inspired writer is going to tell us very shortly in chapter 10 verses 3 and 4 in contrasting the sacrifice of Jesus against the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the limits of the Old Covenant sacrifices. Look what he says, beloved, in verses 3 and 4. In those sacrifices, the Old Covenant sacrifices, there is remembrance again made for sins every year. Oh, here's the contrast. I'm sorry. No, he goes on to say, for it is not possible that the blood of the bulls and the goats should take away sins. So there is remembrance in them. Now here's the contrast. You see it in verses 12 and 14. But this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he does what everybody does when something's completed. He sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, it says in verse 14, He hath perfected, completed in the Greek, forever them that are sanctified. So yes, I can be absolutely dogmatic in my interpretation that that's what that means. Because of what Jesus did, God will no longer remember. Not only can I rest confidently in this interpretation because the text says so, But also the Lord Jesus Christ gave his church other things to help us at this church on a weekly basis. Other churches, they do it at different times. But he gives us other object lessons to remember this new covenant reality. To rest upon. To to stay fixed upon. To be certain and stand upon his finished work at Calvary. And it's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. I would contend that the Lord's Supper is not just a dead memorial. It's a means of grace in reality and connected to what's being taught here in verse number 12. Now, when I say it's a means of grace, of course I don't mean that it is, I don't mean that in some kind of sacramental way. I'm not Meaning in any way that the, the bread and the juice are effectual in pardoning us from our sins, nor is our performing the act pardoning us from sin. Rather, what it is is it's an ordinance, what we do at the Lord's Supper, in which we remember Jesus' once and for all atoning sacrifice. Amen, which is the very foundational grounds that shields us from the penetrating eye of God and His wrath. So not only do we have the Word of God, but the Lord Jesus Christ also, as a means of grace, beloved, He gives us this thing that we do. Have thought it is rather odd? The Lord's Supper. And, 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 and some get confused with it. Some try to say that it's Jesus being sacrificed literally every time it's done. And that they are literally eating Jesus' flesh. And they're literally drinking his blood. And this is the, the, this is the mistake of the Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox to this day. But, but that's not what's going on in, in the Lord's Supper. What's going on is rather when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're being reminded in humility and gratitude of what has taken place in verse number 12 or what was the grounds that took place in verse number 12. And that promotes in us a posture of humbleness because we know it's by Jesus' blood that we're pardoned. And it promotes within us gratitude because we know who we really are and what our sins truly deserve. So not only does the text teach us the certainty that God does not remember our sins, but also in the act of the supper we're being reminded of this. At the Lord's Supper, we embody verse number 12 in our very experience before the throne of grace and we sing with the hymn writer, For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim, I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. It is entirely contrary to what we just read in those passages of Hebrews regarding the once and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We'll unpack this more when we get there. To convey the idea that Jesus is literally being crucified again every single time we take the Lord's Supper. We do not, as members of the New Covenant, need a continual remembrance of sin. We do not need a continual sacrifice for sin like the Old Covenant. Once a year on the Day of Atonement. We don't need it once a Sunday here on the Lord's Day. We don't need it once a month. Because it is finished. We celebrate this existing and perpetual reality, beloved, because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. We've understood the grounds by which verse number 12 can be um, done by God we've considered the action of what's really being said and why it's being said. But now I want to move to more of an an applicatory thought of verse number 12. Okay? What is, why do I call it the crowning jewel of the new covenant? Because friends, as you see in your notes, this reality that we experience because of the finished work of Jesus grants to us a peaceful, clear conscience with God like nothing else can do. This is, in other words, that which grants us a conscience that is completely at peace with a holy God when we know we have committed sin. Speaking of the conscience of man moving in this direction now, It was awakened, wasn't it? When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened? Their conscience was awoken. We have transgressed against God's law. We have violated a command from God. Oh no, let us run and hide ourselves. Sin had entered in to their lives and their conscience was screaming at them. You disobeyed God. You disobeyed God. And what was God's reaction to that? His reaction was not, well, it's not a big deal. No, a sacrifice has to be made now. We have to cover this sin. He made a means by which they could be forgiven. But he didn't, but he, but he didn't just act like there was nothing wrong with it. No, it was judged. It was dealt with. And this is what happens to our conscience. When we violate the law of God through our own sins. And this is why it can never be useful. In order to give us a clear conscience that's at peace. The law will not do that. You remember last week in Romans chapter 4. Where Paul was trying to demonstrate. That we are justified entirely separate from our works. And from our obedience. And one way in which he did that is he said as you see in your sermon notes. He said if. They which are of the law be heirs, or that is justified, made right with God. Faith is made void. If it's by the law, then faith is made void. And the promise made of none effect. Because why? He said the law worketh what wrath. The, the, the law condemns. The law, when it's used that way, we noticed last week, it's a good way to use the law. That's the purpose of the law. But it can't bring a clear conscience which is the blessing that every new covenant participant ought to be enjoying, being blessed with, walking in the reality of a clear conscience because of the work of Jesus Christ. That can only be accomplished by the applied atonement of Jesus through faith, by grace. And a conscience at peace with God through the work of Christ is what I'm saying we experience in verse number 12. Notice in your notes, the byproduct of through faith, trusting in the work of Jesus and Jesus alone as the grounds by which God will not remember your sins, will not remember your lawless deeds. It is the byproduct, your conscience being scrubbed continually of condemnation. I'm trying to help you see that in verse number 12, this promise that God has based upon the soul, merits, and work of Christ is the blessing that you have. That you ought to be experiencing. And so when the law condemns, the new covenant participant who is trusting upon nothing but the blood that we sung They bring their sins. They bring their failures. They bring their miserable attempts to win the favor of God by their own good deeds. Where? To the foot of the cross. And it's there at the foot of the cross. What do they find? The pooled blood of Jesus Christ. That's what you find in those times to purge your conscience clean. Clean. Beloved, it is there and it is only there prostrated at the cross can you ever hope to find a peaceful conscience. Notice with me in your sermon notes how later on the inspired writer of Hebrews is going to connect this atoning work of Jesus Christ and the clear conscience that only it can give. In contrast against the old covenant that had the consciousness of their sins, their failures to keep the rules, their failures to keep the law perfectly over their head until the day of atonement. Notice how he connects the atoning work of Christ and this clean conscience, the pure conscience, in chapter 10, verse 22 having there at the foot of the cross, resting in the blood of Christ, resting, this is the gospel, beloved, resting in the gospel. That it is... (laughs) You sing it Sunday after Sunday. You witness it, hopefully many times to your friends and family. You catechize your children and yourselves with it. But what I'm saying is, do you really believe it now? Now? How have you come in here to this place of worship now? Have you come in here with a heart that's bursting at the seams for the work of Christ and what He's given you in the New Covenant? Are you still allowing the condemnation to loom over your head that God has already forgiven and forgotten? There are many in the New Covenant that walk around with this melancholy, my, my dog just got shot attitude, and we ought to be the most free, liberated, joyful people on the planet Earth. This is why he says in, ver- in chapter 10, verse 22, coming back to my point. He says, once you've experienced this, oh, once you've grasped the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, once you first century Christians realize that you are in the midst of God fulfilling this, walk away from your dead works of faith trying to please God. Rest in Christ and His blood alone. Notice the application in chapter 10, verse 22. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Your assurance and how good you... Your assurance in your obedience. Your assurance in your law keeping. Your assurance and your perpetual remembering to do everything you're supposed to. No, 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 no. Having your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. What is the profession of our faith? Jesus has paid it all. Draw near. As new covenant members as participants in this better covenant, who has Christ as our mediator, brothers and sisters, we are freed from the stranglehold of a guilty conscience. You know what this historically has been called by the church? Christian liberty. I know, we talk about this sometimes, Christian liberty means a lot of things nowadays. This is what Christian liberty means, what we're talking about. Knowing that under Christ, God will never remember my sins anymore. I think I gave it to you in sermon notes. It's this idea of what I'm trying to capture here is wonderfully articulated in the Second London Confession of Faith, Chapter Twenty One, Chapter One, and it's notice that this blessing in the New Covenant it affords us this liberty in a negative way. We're free from some things and Unto other things in a positive sense. I think it's in your sermon notes. Uh, Look at, or if not, there's a lot of these floating around in the pews. The second line in Confession of Faith. Chapter 21, paragraph 1 says, The liberty which Christ has purchased, there's that propitiation language, has purchased for believers under the gospel, it consists in what? Their freedom from the guilt of sin the condemning wrath of God. Beloved, that's Hebrews 8.12. That's what we're here learning. We're swimming in this today. It frees them from the severity and curse of the law. And they're being delivered from this present evil world. It delivers them from the bondage to Satan. Why? Because God's written... His law upon their heart and mind. They're not enslaved to this evil world to just think like robots to everything that's presented to them. No. They've been set free from these things. From these shackles. And they've been freed from the dominion of sin. Notice the word dominion. Not that they've been freed from sin. From the dominion of sin. From the evil of afflictions. The fear and the sting of death. The victory over the grave and everlasting damnation. That's what... 8.12, 12, the covenant grounds by which God will not do this is supposed to reassure you that you are free from. And notice what you're free unto now in this work, in this new covenant work of having God right along the law. And, and you knowing that he will never remember your sins anymore, your gross deeds. Also now in your free access to God. He's not that thundering cloud upon Mount Sinai. No, through this blessed means, through the Savior, He is Abba Father. I know I'm coming into His presence, A.J., covered with the blood of Christ. And I can sincerely, I can call Him Father. There's a free access to God. We talked about this when it says, you will know Him and I will be their God and they will be their people. And also it goes on to say, they're yielding obedience unto Him. How do they yield obedience unto Him? Not out of slavish fear. Big contrast there between the old covenant reality and the new covenant reality of being one of God's children and knowing because of the work of Christ He doesn't remember my sins and He will not use them against me yet in times of judgment or cursing. So I don't serve Him out of slavish fear. Sisters in the church, Why? Do you seek to be faithful, helpmeets and wives to your husband? I pray you don't do it out of slavish fear. (laughs) You might think sometimes. Husbands, why? Why when everything in your, you know, fallen flesh says, I'm throwing in the towel, you still sacrifice and you lead to the best of your sanctified ability in your family? Not out of slavish fear. Brother Ross, why do you Get up and bring your young boys to church on Sunday when you can do 101 other things on this day in your free time. I hope and I know you, brother, it's not out of slavish fear, is it? You know it and you do it because Jesus paid it all. Amen? That's why we do it. In this statement of biblical truth that we just read from our confession, we learn that in Christ and because of Christ, we are truly set free to pursue living, obedient, and righteous lives because of what Christ has done. That's why we do it all. Is it done perfectly? No, of course it's not. But it is done with grace that God supplies. Is it done pridefully? Yeah, sometimes. That's why Paul says, sometimes I, you know, I do the things I don't even want to do. And sometimes he, he makes the, uh, the idea in, in the book of Romans where when he does good, there's a root of pride involved in it. But at times it's done in humility. And it's accomplished, isn't it, beloved? This application of this reality of verse 12 in our lives of a clear conscience, maintaining that with God, it is accomplished in our lives one day at a time. And someday, it had come to a complete end. And what's that end of it all? I think I could summarize it well in the words of Jesus. I'm sorry, not in the words of Jesus, but in the work of Jesus. Ephesians 5.27 The purpose is to present to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So in this granting of a clear conscience. Let's for a moment just acknowledge the fact and not kid ourselves that we do really silly things at times. Right? We do sinful things at times. Occasionally, we will really hurt other people by our words, by our actions. And even if it doesn't involve another person, we sin against God. Do we have a remedy for our conscience at those times? I get it, okay, Doug. I see what you're saying, Pastor Doug. Uh, I come to the cross. I believe in Jesus' atoning blood and and, and thereby, in a real, biblical, legal way, God, a righteous, holy God, will never remember my sins. Is that just a one-time thing? Or what happens after that when I sin? Do I have to go back and get saved again? Do I have to go back and ask for Jesus' blood to cover me again, all over again? There's a continual maintenance of our conscience before God provided us in the Scriptures. When we sin against God, 1 John tells us, we come to Him, right brothers and sisters? We acknowledge our sins and we say, God, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my sins. And He is faithful and He is just because of your Savior to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's a promise from God. But it just doesn't stop there. How else, and I want you to get this from a practical aspect of maintaining a clear conscience as a Christian, resting on these blessed truths that we have. How else are you to maintain that? When you sin against someone else, the Bible gives you directions of what to do. You get right with God and you go to that other person and you don't use lawyer language. You don't don't minimize the grossness and the ugliness of your sins. What do we do, beloved? In humility, not always perfectly, but to have a clear conscience, maintain this, brothers and sisters, in your Christian walk. You go to the person that you've sinned, acknowledge your sin, ask for forgiveness without any expectations. Without any expectations. A true humble confession and someone wanting to have a pure conscience is not walking into a confession booth with an agenda to get the result that they want at the end. Does that make sense? Alright. Now, how many of you husbands in here have done that and made a fool of yourself? Okay, I'm the only one. Okay, thanks, Eddie. Yeah. And it took God to teach us, didn't it, brother? You're you're actually being prideful in your confession. You're actually maintaining a posture of pride and resentment and your conscience still is not going to be pure. It's still not going to be clean. Jesus, beloved, has made us free. And if we are freeing Him, John 8.36 says we will be free indeed. So we live with a clear conscience. We need to maintain a clear conscience. By refusing to waller around in the failures that God has already, as I said before, and we're learning today, permanently forgiven us for. Now, I was telling my daughter this morning, and I didn't have this in my notes, but it come to mind. At this point, it's very important of what we're saying that we avoid two ditches. The one ditch is that we take this blessed truth and we turn it into lasciviousness. And we say, and we walk out of here at church, and they go, well, um, I truly believe in the blood of Christ. And so technically God can never remember my sins. And so I guess <laughs> I can just keep sinning. That's lasciviousness. That's abusing the grace of God, of what he's given us in this precious gift of the liberty of our conscience and the salvation and the atoning work of Christ. Stay out of that ditch. The Apostle Paul says, knowing the weaknesses of our flesh, he said, stay on the path, stay on the straight path. He said, God forbid that we should continue in sin, that grace should abound. You know the verse well, right? But then the other ditch is the person that's going to lock themselves up in an iron cage. They, they treat someone wrong. They follow the commands of God or the Word of God rather. They come to God and they say, God, I acted a fool today. At the workplace, I went right along with the dirty jokes with the guys in the job site trailer. And I got the construction guys in the... In the, you, know, in the, in the you know, I, I went along. And it's, and it's hard, brothers. Did you have to grow in that? I'm, You know, did you have to grow in that? I had to grow in that. In my early Christian walk, I had to grow in that. No, I'm a Christian. I'm different. Did I lock myself in an iron cage every time I slipped and got involved with some coarse joking on the job site? No, I trusted God's Word. God, I'm asking for your forgiveness. I remember one time... I went back. It was, during a, it was a trailer production meeting and there was a, a, a Sports Illustrated magazine being floated around. Now, I didn't participate in looking at the magazine, but I did not say anything. I didn't say one word. And brothers, you know what? The next time I went back to that job site, a couple days had went by, I didn't get everybody on the whole job site, but I come to that superintendent and I actually told that superintendent that I was a Christian and I felt guilty that I should have said something to him about that magazine because of what that magazine means, what it does, so forth and so on. Did he laugh at me? You know, ironically, he didn't laugh at me. He actually respected the fact that I came and, <laughs> and told him that. He didn't take it out of his trailer and he didn't change his ways. But that's the point, you know. Um, we, we, we have to be careful of those two ditches. Um, we can't lock ourselves and condemn ourselves more than God's Word does. But this gift we have in the new covenant isn't a license just to flippantly continue in sin, and it should not grieve us. And this moves us now, as you see in your notes, to conclusions regarding the covenant. Covenant conclusions. Brothers and sisters, we have spent the last eight messages. And I know some of you are tallying in the front of your Bibles. you got marks on them how long I'm going to be in this book or this chapter. We've been eight messages in chapter eight. Three of those messages have specifically and narrowly been focusing upon the four distinguishing marks of the new covenant as contained in Jeremiah 31. And by now, by now, we should be seeing... That these blessings that are being described in verses 8-12, through don't they succinctly, don't they nicely fit with the experience of believers? Don't they? Participation in these new covenant realities is what historical evangelicals called conversion. Being saved. Being born again. And in closing and moving away from chapter 8 before we go into chapters 9 and 10, I want to, in a practical way, provide you five closing thoughts related to biblical, new covenant, experiential conversion. Being born again. That's what verses 8 and 12 are all talking about. True Christian conversion. What it means to become A true disciple of Jesus Christ. Five thoughts to consider. The first one is, is that biblical conversion being changed? Something happening supernaturally? It is a scriptural thing. Meaning that it plainly is mentioned in the Bible. Psalms 9.7 is just one place. It says, Sinners shall be converted unto thee. They're not going to be the same. It's a biblical truth. New covenant realities, this experiential aspect of the Christian faith, being born again, converted, is a scriptural thing. It's also a necessary thing. Without conversion, we cannot serve God. We cannot obey God on earth. Naturally speaking, every boy, every girl that has come into the world, grown up to be a man and a woman, they do not have, they do not possess that which can believe upon the Lord, Lord God savingly. They can go get groceries for their next door neighbor. But coming to a true love for the Son of God, they naturally are not born with it. They're not born naturally with a fear of God in the sense that they reverence Him and they are concerned about violating His law. The psalmist says that the heavens declare that he exists, but still man continues to sin and he doesn't care. Why? Because he doesn't have a fear of God. Naturally, he's born iniquity and sin. So, conversion is a necessary thing. This is why Jesus said in John 3, 7 to Nicodemus, marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born iniquity. Again, you must have God's law written upon your heart. You must be one of God's people. He must be your God. You must be covered under the blood of the promised Messiah, Nicodemus. But also, understand that what we've been learning in verses 8 through 12, describing real conversion, it is a possible thing. It's a possible thing. Some may wrongly think that biblical conversion is only possible for a favored few people. They're on the outside looking in, but it's not for them. Some perhaps who may be listening to this message or even here today may think that it's too late for them to become a Christian. They think I've been putting it off all my life. Some may be thinking I've been putting on a show that I really am a Christian all my life. It's not possible for me now really to confess and to acknowledge that I am a rotten, guilty, filthy sinner and I need to be covered with the blood of Christ as I've been comparing myself with everyone else in the church, and I've been doing pretty good. It's impossible now for me to have this conversion you're talking about in verses 8 through 12. My case is hopeless. Well, left to you, friend, it is hopeless. But it's not left to you. Dear friend, conversion is a possible thing because of the mighty, powerful work of your Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. Today, could be the day of someone's conversion. Today could be the day where they finally acknowledge the truth of themselves, quit playing a charade, quit playing a game, and actually come in a salvific way to the foot of the cross and repent of all of their sins and cast all of their hope upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Conversion is not only a biblical thing, a necessary thing, a possible thing, but it's a joyful thing, church think for a moment what we have been learning during these last three messages in dealing with the new covenant blessings. Dear friends, evangelical new covenant conversion, it is a joyful thing. I mentioned it before, but I'm afraid that because of the abuses of the prosperity ministries that surround us so much, we don't speak enough about the genuine happiness And the genuine joy of being one of Christ's blood-bought disciples. And could it be that some are looking upon our Christian testimony and they're thinking to themselves, looking at us? Boy, to be a Christian would mean that I would have to become the most melancholy, miserable, low-spirited person and look always on the negative side of things. Because that's what it looks like these Christians are all about. Is that the testimony we're giving? We're in verses 8 and 12? Now, of course, of course, we're not ostriches with our heads in the sands. But if we are finding ourselves more on the side of pessimism instead of optimism, are we really, truly believing the theology that we say the Bible teaches? All of us say here today, Jesus paid it all. God the Father doesn't see my sins anymore. Christ is setting upon the right hand of God because it is finished. Do we live like that? Do we live like that? This was a sobering reality to me. I probably have been the most melancholy, droopy person all week long. And guess what I did? I came into the house last night and don't we have to do this, brothers and sisters? We have to kick ourselves in the flesh sometimes and say, wake up! Quit acting like this! Men, I'm telling you, we set the tone for our homes. If we're going to be the melancholy, negative, you know, I got Jesus and everything's okay for me, but, you know, everything else is just falling apart, blah, blah, blah. Don't be surprised if that's the culture, if that's the spirit in your home. I'm not trying to put too much weight on you guys. I'm just saying from experience. If I'm that way, it dominates my home. But if I'm on the other side of the things... And I have every reason to be. You and I have every reason to be. We have Jesus Christ. We have it all. We've been forgiven of all. All we're waiting for now is the end of the story to be wrapped up. And He's enabled me to be a part of this story in order to be salt and light. Man, we should be on fire, church, for the joy and the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. They could be contagious. It can be contagious. What are people seeing in our lives? Lastly, and I'll end with this. It's not only a biblical thing, a necessary thing, a possible thing, a joyful thing, but it's something that can be seen. Biblical version is something that can be seen. Verses 8-12, through someone coming into the New Covenant, being a member of the New Covenant, it is something that can be seen. I'm going to end with a couple quotes from J.C. Ryle. We have this in, in our... Our literature rack back there. I'd encourage you to get it. He says this quote: "Many have imagined themselves converted because of some carnal feelings of being excited." I'm not. I hope no one's taken away from these messages. That's what I'm talking about. They call themselves converts without the slightest right to the title of that honored and sacred name. He goes on to say. If anyone was to ask me what I may expect to see in a true convert's life, I would reply to them that there was always something seen in the person's character. There was always something detectable in the person's conduct, opinions, and their daily life. Something. Not perfectly, but something. You may not see them in perfection, But you will see them in something peculiar, something distinct, something different from those who do not claim to be converts. And this goes right back to what A.J. says, doesn't it, in his application of Acts 26 this morning. Are you here this morning or listening to this message, perhaps, and you're almost a Christian and you really have not been converted? Come to the foot. Of the cross of Jesus. See yourself how you truly are in the eyes of the holy law of God and be covered by the blood of Christ and escape the condemnation and the wrath that someday will come. Are you like me this week in a season of your Christian walk where you have forgotten the joy, the happiness that you once tasted when you were converted, as we've been describing in verses 8 through 12? Well, shake off that melancholy. Shake off all of those pessimistic, negative things that are, that are putting out your light, dimming your light, brothers and sisters, and shine for the glory of your Savior Jesus Christ first in your marriage, first in your home, and then in those who you come in contact with, with throughout the week in the workplace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh God, we thank You For your word. We thank you for the blessed reality of the work that you have done through the power of your Spirit by bringing, Lord, blind sinners into the light and the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that being covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, meaning trusting in, casting all hope in, placing our faith in Christ and his work upon the cross, you have given us a commitment, a legal bound commitment. To never remember our sins and to have mercy upon us, Lord, even in our times of transgressions. Oh, Father, I pray that you would come alongside every individual that you have placed your law within their heart and mind today. You would help us, oh God, to be the salt and light that we have been called to be. That you would help us, Lord. If we are here and we are more, Lord, in a time of of doubting and just darkness, I I pray, God, that you would lift up your saint. I pray that you would point him again to to Christ. I pray, O God, also that you would, Lord, use these truths. Use these truths to, to help us be more fixed upon the truth of the gospel. These are the foundations of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be settled in them and to be able to use them Uh, articulate them, explain them to others when others need, Lord, hope, when others need encouragement, or when others need to be shown their need of a Savior. Help us to point them to the blood, the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We bless you and we thank you in all things. In His holy and precious name we pray. Amen.